Hello everybody and welcome to the June edition of the distillerytours.scot podcast, giving you the inside track on the whisky distilleries of Scotland and telling some of the stories about the people and the places that make Scotch whisky so special. My name's Richard Woodard and in this episode I spoke to Dennis Malcolm, OBE, the legendary master distiller of the Glen Grant Distillery on Speyside. Dennis tells us some fascinating tales about his 60-year career in Scotch whisky. As you'll hear, he was almost literally born into the job and has seen huge changes since his first day as an apprentice cooper at Glen Grant in 1961. Dennis also discusses what makes Glen Grant such a special distillery, being awarded the OBE for his services to whisky, and what it's like to have a 60-year-old, 25,000-euro whisky named after you. If you'd like to find out more about the Glen Grant Distillery, their whisky and their tours, check out distillerytours.scot and click on the Book Now button on their listing. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Start your whisky journey with Caledonian McBrain, proud sponsors of distillery and whisky news podcasts. Visit calmac.co.uk for further information. I think it's only fair to describe today's guest on the Distillery Tours podcast as a living legend of Scotch whisky. Dennis Malcolm, OBE, Master Distiller of the Glen Grant Distillery on Speyside. Dennis has spent more than 60 years working in Scotch whisky, a feat marked by the release of a very special Glen Grant single malt in 2021. He was even born on the Glen Grant Distillery site and began his whisky career as a fresh-faced 15-year-old in 1961. Since then, Dennis has helped to shape many of Glen Grant's award-winning whiskies, including its current core range. His wider achievements in whisky and the local community were recognised with the award of an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours in 2016. Dennis, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for sparing the time. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine, Richard, and yourself? Yes, very good, very good. Good, good. Let's go right back to the beginning. So you were born at Glen Grant, and I think your father and grandfather also worked there? That's correct. I was born in a little house down beside the, the roundabout now, which used to be a, 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 a much where the memorial used to be. Uh, I was on the solid grounds, and my father worked at Glen Grant before me and my grandfather before that. And what did they do? My father was a, they were both production operators, you know, working in the stills and the mold things and the mashing. Okay, okay. So I guess you were kind of predestined for a career in whiskey. I mean, was there ever anything else that you thought about doing or wanted to do? Well, I had some ideas, like a wee boy, you want to be a train driver or, or a policeman or something like that. But I think it was a foregone conclusion that I'd, I'd go to Glen Grant because... The then owner, Douglas McKessick, had said to all the employees that if they had a, a boy or a girl, a child who was leaving school and looking for work and they had work available just to call up by the distillery. So no fun, no fancy interview, just walk up to the distillery, say who you are and I got a job. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't have to write up a CV or anything like that in those days, I guess. No application at all. <laughs> and growing up where you did uh, in Rothers in Speyside, I'm guessing you know whiskey was quite a big feature 
of life really yes it was it was very much so it, um, I, I jokingly say to people it has the right balance for a small village it had five distilleries and five pubs <laughs> so, but um, it's very much a distilling uh, little village and uh, there's only around 1500 people in Rothes so uh, most of the work was at the distilleries for the uh, for the people of Rothes. Sure, sure. So let's go back to 1961. You're 15 years old and I think you started work at Glen Grant as an apprentice cooper. So what, what do you remember about those very early days working there? Oh, the very first day I started, you to start early in the morning, you know, half past six in the morning. And I, I walked up to the distillery and uh, knew I was going to the cooperage. So the cooperage had big double doors and, you know, those old-fashioned farm sort of handles, like a little handle, a little lever you push down, like a snake, as we call it. So I knocked on the door because I heard knocking noises in there. You know, it was hammers working at the coopers. I knocked on the door and all of a sudden it went quiet. Uh, a voice said, come in. So I opened the door about, I'm not joking, about six, seven inches. And I slid in sideways, shut the door and stood behind the door. I was, <laughs> everybody stopped working and just stared at me. I was, <laughs> I thought, wow, have I done the right thing here? They're just playing with me. <laughs> but still quite welcoming people. Oh, yes, unbelievably good. You know, uh, my first job was to, when the head cooper came through and saw me, my first job was to make an apron. And you didn't buy aprons. They, they used quarter barley socks, you know, the Hessian socks. So I had to go and I didn't know how to do that. So I went over to the head maltman and he almost made it for me, you know. And I went back with it and uh, it, apparently he'd made a very good job with the head maltman. So the cooper said... Hi, I'm alone. You, you, you must have got a hand with that. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> Very helpful. But working in the cooperage, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty physical job as well. Was it quite hard? Yeah, it was. It, it, was, it, was, it was a job that I wanted to do, Richard, because I was intrigued how a, a, a cask or a barrel could maintain that shape with no glue to hold in a liquid, it was thinner than water. So it was, I was very interested in doing that. So I, I um, and it's heavy work, as you say, wielding a hammer and uh, making hoops and building barrels. And I guess around the distillery, this was a very different era, wasn't it? When we're talking about the early 60s, these days there are a lot of computers in distilleries, but back then you wouldn't have known what a computer was, would you? Oh, hadn't a clue. It, it was a wee while before I found out what a calculator was, you know. And and we didn't have a forklift. I think it was 1963. So everything that was moved had to be moved physically by your your two hands, you know. The men had to push the casks and push them up. Uh, it's what we called rails up onto a, a horse to, to do the stowing in the warehouse. So everything was hand-operated. Sure, sure. And I think you said it was a, a bit of an innovation when you went, from a sort of proper ink pen to using a biro. Uh, that is correct. When I when I went into production, when I was 25, it was 1971, you had to record everything that you, you did at the distillery, the compare, the, the amount of whiskey you made, the amount of washbox you filled. And it was a, a, a nib and a, an inkwell that I had to write in these big compare books. That had been the tradition. And it took a few few years before they'd allow us to use a biro. And 
now when I look back, they were quite right because some days when you look at what you've written, you can hardly read it yourself now. You get very, very um, careless with a viral. So, yes, a very different time. And tell us about drumming, because I think that's something that people these days probably wouldn't have a clue about. But what was what was drumming and, and what happened with that? Well, it was a, it was a, a tradition in the warehouse, uh, in the distillery, that the men would, would get a, a refreshment or a drum, maybe maybe up to three times in a shift, you know, when they started midway and at the end of the shift. And there's also uh, sort of a little taste of it when you had to do hot work or dirty work. And that was continued till, I think it was 1979, when the the unions decided that it, it wasn't a good thing to do because if people made a mistake, um, it was maybe because they'd maybe drunk a little bit too much. Yeah, so... So what were people drinking? Was it the new make? Yes, the 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 work the operators, the shift operators were getting the new make at sixty three point five percent by volume. And believe it or not, you know, if you gave them the choice to have the new make or a mature one from the warehouse, they always chose the new one because they they maintained that it didn't hang on them too long, you know? <laughs> really? Okay. It wasn't to do with the additional strength or anything like that. Uh, well, it might be a little <laughs> bit there. They thought they were getting short, de- short dealt. <laughs> but th- yeah, three times a day. I mean, it's kind of surprising there weren't more accidents or problems, really. Yeah, I, I think it was maybe a good thing to do that, uh, to, to stop the, the free drumming. And uh, the companies then gave them a bottle a month, which which didn't replace the, the extra drums that they had. <laughs> no, no, but a bit safer probably all around. And this was the era, where you mentioned him earlier, when Douglas McKessack was running the distillery. Now, obviously, I never met him, but I've heard a lot about him. What kind of character was he? Uh, he, was a, he was a proper gentleman, you know. I, I always refer to him as a gentleman distiller, and I have tried to model myself on him as well. Why I say that is, when I was the production brewer, he would, he would come into the distillery maybe at 10 in the morning, I'd go for a little walk with these two poodle dogs and then pop into my office and ask how things were going. And I would then start telling him, oh, it's a bit warm today and they're still running slow. And he would just say, no, no, Dennis, how are the people? He wanted to know firstly how the people were doing then about the distillery, you know. So he's very much a people person. And how long did he run the distillery for? It was quite some time, wasn't it? Yes, he took over the distillery. He was left the distillery from his grandfather in 1931. And it was 1978 when he decided to retire. That's when the company was taken over by Shivers or Seagrams. So it must be something about Glen Grant. People tend to stick around, bearing in mind Mr McKessick and then yourself as well. Yeah, well, I, I was I was just a youngster when I started in production, you know. I... I was the the boy in the in, in the production side of it at at the age of twenty or so, and uh, the men there had all been served maybe oh, 20, 30, 40 years, you know. And these days, you 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 didn't just go in and do a job and then move on in a few weeks' time. You had to do that job for two three years before they felt that you were competent to do the job. But you did have your time away from Glen Grant, sort of in the middle of your career, didn't you? Sort of running other distilleries 
in the area. Was that interesting to go to different places? I it was it was really good. I I thought it made a, made me a better distiller because I saw what other people were doing and I was working with different people as well. People who I didn't grow up with. So the, there was a, a a nice mutual respect between them and me. But I wasn't away from the distillery that long because when I moved up to Glenlivet, which was part of the Glenlivet Distillers in 1979, I then came back to Glengarrock in 83. And then in 1992, I moved over to Strathila to run the Shivers 9 distilleries. So Glengarrock was still in the, in the mix then. But you came back sort of full time, if you like, in 2006, was that right? That's correct, Richard. In 2000, the the company was taken over by Pernod, and they sort of obviously wanted to put their own people into these different positions to run the company. So I uh, I left then, and I worked at Balmenach Distillery to 2006, when Campari asked me to come back and head up Glengarron for them. So, I mean, obviously you were asked, that's maybe the main reason, but what was it that brought you back? Did you feel like you got some unfinished business with Glen Grant? Richard, you know, it didn't matter what they'd offered me, I'd have still went back because I was born on site. The biggest part of my heart is at Glen Grant. So uh, there was never going to be any thought, pause for thought to say, will I go or will I not go? It was immediately yes. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Glen Grant as a place and as a distillery. You know, what if somebody was visiting for the first time? How would you describe it? What sort of distillery is it compared to others? Well, I I would I, I usually abbreviate things to a couple of words if I can. You know, I always say tradition and innovation because we still use wooden fermenters that were used when they started distilling and the still house has purifiers that were fitted into the still process back in the 1870, mid-1870s by Major James Grant. So we're still using these traditional methods in making Glen Grant. And there's another thing I usually say, cleanliness is next to godliness, so I, I think the distillery has to be spotlessly clean at all times Everywhere, not just the bit at the, the, the visitors see, everywhere has got to be of the high standard. Uh, why is that? What, what's so important about that for you? Well, I think it, it raises the bar for, for the standard of housekeeping and makes a place much safer in many ways. And when people go to a distillery and find it's not very tidy, that's why we don't want people to come in the silent season when things are in pieces and it's getting maintained, you know they go away with the wrong idea because if you were visiting a distillery and it was untidy your mind would then think wow if they're not so proud of their own plant how careful are they going to be looking after the the process parameters and moving beyond the kind of mechanics of the distillery what about the whiskey itself how would you describe the glen grant spirit and what makes it that way well, Glengarrant, as I say, Glengarrant used wooden fermenters, so I maintain a part of the character comes from that. And the shape and style of our stills are distillation, because we have very tall, slender stills, so the, the vapours have to go up very high up into the neck, so it's only the lightest vapours you're collecting. And by channeling it through the purifier before it goes to the condensers to be condensed into liquid, 
we run cold water over the purifier head and the light vapours rise again, they hit the cold head, the heavier ones reflux back into the still and only the lighter ones go over to be condensed and that gives us this lovely rich fruity estuary spirit. A lot of what you're describing there suggests uh, quite a light style but I'm guessing not insubstantial, not, not too light. No, it's 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 light light and fruity and a a, a little bit spicy at, at the end. Not too bad, you know. It's always been that way, Glengarrant, and I like to think that we try to maintain that character that was laid down by the founders many years ago. And as it matures, depending on obviously what kind of cask you're using and so on, how does it change? Uh, it gets much softer as it gets older, just like people, you know. <laughs> they, we all get soft. Um, and we, we use sherry casks and bourbon casks, quite a bit of bourbon casks. So it, it picks up all these lovely toffee, creamy vanilla notes from the bourbon and the sweetness from the sherry. So Glengarant is, is, I would say it's... It's very delicate, soft on the nose. It's golden brown in colour. It's fruity, extremely fruity in the palate, creamy fruity and fruity and nutty on the finish. And after really long ageing, I mean, I've tasted one or two Glen Grants from 30 years plus, and it's something that seems to change and evolve as it acquires that kind of longevity. What do you think it is? Is that in the spirit from the beginning? It's in the spirit from the beginning, but it's also the type of casks that we use because Glengarant uh, are proud to say that we only use the casks three times. We know we we uh, we want to get the best out of the casks to to uh, give us that lovely flavours that you get from the casks. And moving beyond the distillery itself, I know for a fact that it's got some beautiful gardens as well if people are visiting they should definitely try and take a, a walk up through the gardens if they can oh yeah it's it's a little bit of everything you know and it's not just a distillery i i think it's a tourist attraction when we have a, a roughly about 22 acres of victorian garden which is laid out in orchards and flowers and plants from all over the world and up at the far end of the garden there is a, a rocky gorge with a couple of waterfalls, a shallow, very shallow cave where the son of the founder used to put a cask that he preferred and his butler would top up his decanters and his spirit safe that he had built into the rocks from that cask. Wonderful. And so there's a long history, you said Victorian gardens, so is that when they began back in the Victorian era? It certainly was. It was. It was John, one of the founding distillers. John and James founded it. It was John who founded the gardens, and then when the young James Grant took over the story in eighteen seventy-two, he had a passion for the, the nature and the gardens as well. So he extended them and kept adding different species into the gardens. So it was good. Yeah, it just shows how distilleries are more than just places for making whiskey, really. Ah, oh, Richard, we, we depend on nature, you know. Uh, it's not the Scottish Envi Environmental Protection Agency that look after the land. It should be the distiller, because what do we need? We need water and an abundance, and we need barley, which is grown in the ground and yeast. So without without us looking after the, the environment, we'd be in big trouble. And it's been quite a bit of work done on the gardens since Campari took over, I think, hasn't it? Ah oh, yes, we, we've 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 maintained the gardens 
almost I would say from the pictures as it was back in the in the 1800s 1880s you know one other episode that we could talk about with Glenn Grant which maybe some people wouldn't know about there suddenly came a time when Glenn Grant became very big in Italy which maybe some people wouldn't necessarily associate with with scotch whiskey but how did that come about well, that, that was quite an unusual thing because there's a guy called Armando Giovanetti who was over in Scotland back in 1960 and I think he was, he'd visited a few distilleries but he actually met Douglas McKessick and he'd wanted to distribute Glen Grant or single malt in Italy. So Douglas McKessick gave him a few cases into the boot of his car and off he went and the rest just history because Douglas McKessick's son-in-law, Hugh Metcalf, he then became the marketing director and spent a lot of time in Italy. And I remember back in the early to mid-70s, Glen Grant in Italy, the five-year-old expression, was almost half a million cases, you know, a year in one country. It was amazing. Really amazing. And it's still pretty big there now, I think, isn't it? Yeah, Italy's still one of the biggest markets for us, yes. But it basically says to me, you know, that Glen Grant is a very good young spirit at five years old because that's what they wanted and it keeps on appreciating all the way right up until that 60 year expression that I launched in 2021. Well let's talk about that that's a good good moment to address that one because you celebrated 60 years working in whiskey last year in 2021 and then this Glen Grant whiskey was released with your name on it I think. That's that's correct. That's correct. How did that come about? Tell us about it. Well, they they wanted they wanted to do a bottling. They did one when I was fifty years there, and we called it. Uh, uh, I had a fifty-year-old mid five decades before that, but this one is basically to to celebrate my sixty years in the industry and most of that years at Glen Grant. And it was quite easy for me to select the cask because in nineteen ninety, Glen Grant had been producing for 150 years and we had a big celebration then. And Douglas McKessick had selected two or three sherry butts and bottled them off at 30 years old. And this one that we chose was one of that batch was filled then because it was filled in, in October 1960. So I had a good idea that it was going to be very good at 60, you know. I can't imagine you have that many 60-year-old casks floating around the place anyway, really. Uh, there's, one or, there's one or two still there. Not a lot in, in single numbers, but uh, but they are there. They are there. Oh, yeah. You'll have to show me them sometime anyway. <laughs> well, well, if you can get up, I'll, I'll certainly do that. A whiskey with your name on it and costing, I think I'm right in saying, 25,000 euros. That must seem a bit strange for you know that 15 year old boy who walked through the doors of the cooperage all those years ago <laughs> yeah it's, it's quite it's quite a, a a price for a for a single malt but having said that you know if you've got the the nerve to lay it down and keep it for that length of time it's it's good there's always 360 bottles but there's they're all spoken for you know most of them are sold and theirs are spoken for so i mean you've it seems to have been busier than ever the last few years. There was the new range for Glen Grant that I know you were putting together. That must have been quite good fun to, to create. Yeah, it was good because when Campari took over, really, you know, we had we had the five-year-old for Italy and we had the Majors Reserve, which was a non-age, just in, just in, a little bit in Europe. And 
we used to sell about 3,000, 3,500 bottles of 10-year-old in the visitor centre, and that was our whole range. Now, the reason for that was when, when Chivas Pernod took us over in 1979, they didn't focus on using Glen Grant or promoting Glen Grant, but they were very good to Glen Grant because they kept it working at full capacity all the time and laid down enough to support the Italian growth. But when Campari took over, the, the, the huge investment they've put behind it and the freedom we had to create new expressions, it, it was fantastic. So we, we now have, instead of having three, we have the, we've got Arboralis, which was launched two years ago. That's a, a, a young one. We have the five-year-old for Italy. We have the 10-year-old. We have the 12-year-old. We have the 15, the 18, and there's one going to be re uh, an older, slightly older one going to be released later this year. Uh, well, we'll definitely have to look out for that one. And it's worth saying when we were talking about the distillery, um, Glen Grant's quite a big distillery, isn't it? Yes, at, at full capacity, I, I, I say it can do 6 million to 6.2 million, and that's, that's roughly 1,000 a bottles a week. That's litres of pure alcohol. Pure alcohol, a, yeah. A year. yeah. Yeah. So, and, and how many stills? Maybe people might understand that a little bit better. We have four pairs of, of stills, four wash stills and four spirit stills. So, creating the new range, and then in 2016 was a really big announcement that you'd been awarded the OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours. I mean, that must have been a very proud moment for you and your family. Yeah, it was a huge surprise, really, because I I, I, I wasn't really looking for any recognition. I just I just love doing what I'm doing, you know. It's not a job, it's a way of life. So I was really surprised when that happened. But it was good because I accepted it, and I think I accepted it on behalf of the, of the industry. It, it was good to see that the industry was being recognised for what it does for, for the government. And I think you, you told me earlier that it was uh, Princess Anne that presented you with that. What kind of day was that? Ah, you know something? This this month of the year that this happened has been clicking back the years at Glen Grant as well because it was October October the 27th that I was down in Buckingham Palace getting the OBE and it was the 24th of October 1960 that the 60-year-old was laid down and it was the 14th of October 1840 that Glen Grant started production in Rothes and believe it or not Douglas McKessick died in October as well so I mean October seems to be the, the, the key month for Glen Grant. We should probably name it Glen Grant month or something every year. <laughs> yeah, you're putting marketing ideas into my head now. <laughs> So, I mean, 60 plus years, I'm, I'm going to have to ask this question. Do you ever think about retiring? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm frightened to slow it down in case I stop altogether. <laughs> You're still enjoying it just as much as you always did. I'm still enjoying it. I don't run the distillery as such. I've got a young, mm. got a young, young guy down there who I trained, Greg Stables, who is... He's very much like me, you know. Uh, very, he's very passionate and proud of Glen Grant, and I would say I could, I could disappear tomorrow, and I know Glen Grant is in good hands. Oh, that's good to know. And whiskey seems to have been such a big part of your life right the way through. Um, but do you find time for other things? Do you have any hobbies, interests, and so on? Yeah, I I used to caravan a lot and travel about that way and see the countryside. I used to like that, and I I do like gardening, and I've. I don't know. I've done a few a few things. I spent 
six, eight years as a justice of the peace on, on, on the courts in Elgin, and a wee while on the school, the Rother School, I thought I'd put something back there, so I went on to the, 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 the board of the school there until they changed it a few years back to parent-teacher, you know, so they didn't want outsider people, and I've spent a lot of my life at, involved with the church. Different, a different spirit, a different spirit, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right, we've got time for a last couple of questions, which we always like to ask people. The first one is, if somebody listening to this is just getting interested in whiskey and they want to take that a bit further and explore it, have you got any advice you would give them? Yes, grab the opportunity because there are many, many opportunities in the industry now. You don't have to just come in and push casks or run the production side. You can go into the office, do the accounts, you can go into quality, you can go into health and safety, you can go into engineering. There's superb opportunities for young people and that's what the industry is needing because I feel that when I'm doing presentations, it's the younger generation that are more interested and questioning about why is this different from that whiskey and why is this made this way. So if they're that interested, I would say don't think about it, just apply. And last question of all, which can be a hard one. If you could pick any whiskey and any moment in terms of the time, the place, the people you're with, what would you choose and why? Okay, I would... I would take you for a little wander up through our Victorian garden, stop at the safe in the rocks, open the safe between the rocks and the barn running over the waterfall. It's a beautiful, cool environment. Open the safe and pour you one of the range that we have. And I would possibly pick the 15-year-old because it's it's first of all bourbon casks at 15-year-old and it's bottled at as near cask strength as we possibly can, 50% by volume. And it's, it's drinking it in the atmosphere, out with nature. You're connecting with nature and you're with people, people who are interested in the same thing as you. So that is the, the best thing that I can ever remember drinking whiskey. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Dennis, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today um, and hearing about so many great memories of Glen Grant. So thanks very much. Thank you, Richard, and hope to see you at Glengarron sometime. For sure. Definitely see you there soon. If you enjoyed hearing from Dennis and would like to know more about the Glen Grant Distillery Tours and Whiskies, visit their dedicated page on the distillerytours.scot website and click on the Book Now button to join one of their exciting whisky experiences and tastings. And do check out the beautiful distillery gardens which are looking especially stunning at this time of year. Distillerytours.scot has every whisky distillery visitor centre in one place. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, or sign up for our Distillery and Whisky News monthly email to hear the podcast first at distillerytours.scot slash sign up. In the meantime, look out for our July podcast, when we'll be visiting another of Scotland's great whisky distilleries. See you next time.